Hi, I'm your host Tom Payne. Welcome to Shire Network News, the official podcast of the Anglospheric group blog SilentRunning.tv. Um, about that, uh, those of you who read SilentRunning.tv may have noticed something a little bit unusual lately, like, for example, the fact that it's not actually there. As Captain Malcolm Reynolds of the spaceship Serenity might say, ladies and gentlemen, we may experience some turbulence and then explode. Our hosting company suffered some sort of power surge, and very much like the Starship Enterprise in the original series of Star Trek, they seem to have neglected to employ certain aspects of mid-20th century technology, such as fuses. There were showers of sparks, guys in red shirts being chucked around the room, the whole nine yards. Oh, and a funny thing about this, you're going to laugh, they didn't have backup files on separate servers, like the service contract said they were contractually obligated to provide. The end result of this has been that SilentRunning.tv is currently kaput. Never fear, though, we are about to return, large as life and twice as ugly. Heroic efforts by Windrider are about to bear fruit, and a new site will become operational at our normal address. Thank goodness. We'll be using a different hosting company, though, this time, one with backup servers and the secret knowledge of the ancients on how to employ the mystic technology known as fuses. As for our former hosting company... We are assured by the freelance negotiator we have engaged in this matter, Mr. Vincenzo Cagliari of Newark, New Jersey, that they will shortly be engaging in what he describes as piscine somnambulation, whatever that means. Long story short, we were gone for a while, but we'll be back shortly. On the other hand, uh, no blog news this week. I've been pretty busy, but it will be back again for our next episode. This week, though, we have plenty on the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina and the disaster in New Orleans. Silent running contributor Kiwi Bob, a former emergency services official in New Zealand, knows exactly how to protect the population from anything bad ever happening to them when nature's fury strikes. Before something happens, you take up a whole population, you wrap them up in cotton wool and bubble wrap for three days, you take all their property and their pets and their plants and their houses, and you wrap that up in bubble wrap, and then once the storm has passed, you transplant everyone back home as if nothing's happened. The reality is, of course, it's not like that. You just don't know what's going to happen. Saturday the 17th sees New Zealanders go to the polls to elect Don Brash's National Party to replace Helen Clark and Labour if there's a just and merciful God in heaven. NZ pundit writer Craig Ranapia has been looking at the polls, which have had National out in front, then Labour, then National again, and currently has them running neck and neck. He's formed his own opinion of the New Zealand electorate based on that. There's another possibility that a large chunk of the electorate is so indecisive that they're probably a nightmare to go shopping with, take to restaurants or no engage in any activity that requires a decision. Lawrence Simon will be along with a very personal tribute to the Houston Astrodome and will end with a musical treat, our London correspondent Andrew Ian Dodge's band, Growing Old Disgracefully, has released their single Cry Freedom and will give it its worldwide debut at the end of the show. No actual report from London this week, as Andrew is off on some sort of drug fueled rock and roll orgy in the British countryside. I'm not sure of the details. I lost interest when it became apparent he wasn't about to send a Learjet loaded with teenage groupies to Australia to pick me up and take me there. Next time, Andrew, you promised. Now, although there's no blog news this week, I do have something interesting to share with you. Archaeologists have discovered an ancient stone tablet in the middle of Europe with what appears to be writing from a vanished Stone Age-era civilization. Here's a loose translation. 
Earth Goddess, angry at tribe. Rain fall down, river spirit, rise up and drown people. Tribal shaman says, only one rational thing to do. Must sacrifice tribal chieftain to appease angry Gaia. Chieftain to blame. Chief responsible for everything. If bad thing happened, he to blame. He must have angered gods. Nothing to do with tribe living in caves next to river. River not right this far before. In other tribal news, Chalman announces high-tech breakthrough. If certain rocks get heated very hot, new stuff can be formed called metal. Very useful stuff, say Shaman. Now, only finest quality high-tech metal be used to make extra sharp drill bits to bore a hole in skull to let demons out. Also, invention of bow and arrow announced. Enemy can now be killed far away. Protesters say this bad. Tribe must give up bad weapon. Otherwise, other tribes make them cause fights. Shaman now say war unthinkable. Now, back to Ugg, standing by with tribal shaman for daily goose sacrifice and examination of entrails for long-range weather forecast. So, Ugg, any chance Ice Age end before we get? Yes, it's good to see just how far civilization's progressed, isn't it? Well, while we're on the subject of natural disasters, Kiwi Bob, one of the writers at Silent Running, was for some years in a senior position with a key disaster preparedness agency of the New Zealand government. I asked him what his response was to the way the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina unfolded in New Orleans. From my experience working in the field of emergency management, I mean, we, we tell New, have told New Zealanders for years that you need to prepare yourself for at least three days of having three days' supply of water and food and for everyone in your household. Because why? Because three days, you can't count on anyone coming for you, right? You're going to have to eat over a candle. You're going to have to shit in a bucket. You're going to have to wash yourselves with, the, with your drinking water. It's going to be bloody awful. And for three days, you're on your own. Be prepared. Now, what I saw when I looked at New Orleans was on about day four or five, relief was finally getting through to people. To me, that did not seem to be too bad. I, you know, think that any sensible person looking at the scale of the Dallas and it was a huge, I mean, this hurricane has done massive damage across a number of states. Huge numbers of people are affected. What do people expect? I think if the only way you won't get complaints and finger-pointing is if you can, before something happens, you take up a whole population, you wrap them up in cotton wool and bubble wrap for three days, you take all their property and their pets and their plants and their houses and you wrap that up in bubble wrap, and then once the storm has passed, you transplant everyone back home as if nothing's happened. The reality is, of course, it's not like that. You just don't know what's going to happen. Now, in America, unlike New Zealand, where we have a centralised small emergency management civil defence ministry and we've got civil defence at local government level, in America, emergency management is handled on so many multiple levels. You've got the federal level through FEMA. You've got state, federal emergency or state emergency management people, county and city and so forth. Everyone's got, got a role. A lot of people are there because they're a political appointee, so they're looking at their um, political futures, perhaps more so than um, the needs of the emergency management. So perhaps their uh, motivation is somewhat skewed. All this adds to the problem when you have multiple agencies also have political mandate. You elect sheriffs in the States, for goodness sake. You elect fire chiefs in America, for goodness sake. Judges. Judges who, who have an emergency management role, right? Um, when all these players are, co- are connecting and disconnecting and all have different motivations and objectives, it is a recipe for problems. And the States had it when Hurricane Andrew hit Florida, which, what well, I was told, brought down... George Bush Sr. Um, it's no surprise to me that 
people are complaining that the, the system failed this time. Having said that, the scale was still bloody big, and I'm not sure what more could be done, and I'm sure that will come out in the wash. What about the argument that um, poor people didn't have access to transport, they couldn't just get in their SUV and drive to a nice hotel, that they were you know, effectively trapped there in the city, that uh, this is to do with race, this is to do with class? Not, not having been to New Orleans, um, but having been to FEMA twice in D.C., I, would, I wouldn't be at all surprised if there isn't a racial component or a not necessarily a racial component, but a poverty component. But the issue has to be that um, you've got a mayor of a city whose chief responsibility must surely be the welfare of their own citizens. He should have been thinking about that. From what I saw, they were all told to go to the Superdome and hang out, but there was nothing there, there was no infrastructure to support it. The impression we're getting is that there was a plan, but they barely even looked at the plan and they basically just winged it. There may well have been a plan. I can tell you, when I was at FEMA, I saw a state-by-state -state hazard analysis, and each state was required to document what they perceived as being their major hazards, and this was compiled into this beautiful little booklet in full technicolor. And you had states which listed things such as you know, propensity or exposure to tornadoes, um, flooding, um, in some parts like the Dakotas who had uh, missile silos. You know, they had nuclear nuclear attack was a, as, as a hazard, right? And they had itemized and circled the major areas where the silos were and the radiation fallout zones and what have you. And I assume they had a nice big one for Louisiana and New Orleans with, uh, you know, 8 by 10 glossy photos with uh, circles and arrows and a paragraph on the back of each one explaining what each one was about, but it didn't seem to do a lot of good. Well, time. they may have had that, but the interesting thing is you had some states in the Midwest that also had tsunami as a major hazard. When you have Midwest states who, who list tsunami as a, as a, as a potential hazard, it suggests to me that perhaps the thinking hasn't necessarily gone into this. If a tsunami reaches Kansas, then the whole globe's going <laughs> to <go on. laughs> Well, I certainly found it funny. I know some of the FEMA people sort of found it funny. But underneath that, it means that there's people out there who haven't got a bloody clue what they're doing. What about New Zealand, in particular uh, Wellington, the capital city? It's built right on a fault line. Correct. If a disaster of this kind of magnitude, for, in Wellington's case, obviously an earthquake, it's what can Wellingtonians expect? Here's the difference. Uh, you had you had Katrina bearing down on the on the Gulf, so you had time to prepare to some degree. We we don't know when the earthquake is going to hit, but we know it is going to hit, and there are different likelihoods of it occurring within the next 50 or so years. That means it could be tomorrow. It could also be in 50 years' time. When it hits, uh, for those listeners who don't are unfamiliar with Wellington, it's at the bottom of the North Island, the main highway, the main railway, are sitting right on top of the fault line, which is predicted predicted to move two metres vertically and seven metres horizontally when the big one hits. So those, most of those roads and rail will be completely cut off. That leaves sea, well, we can expect the foreshore and the inner harbour to be completely damaged, so berthing is going to be an issue. The airport is close to the city centre and is likely to have inundation with tsunami or be damaged and cracked through um, fractures due to the earthquake, which means we're probably left with helicopter and small boats in terms of getting people in and out of the city. And you've got around about 150,000, 200,000 people in the area. The wider Wellington area goes about 350, but within the in that danger zone, you're probably looking at 175,000 people. They're expecting fatalities in the central area, central business district in the hundreds, um, injuries in the thousands. We can also expect, because the city streets are predominantly just two-lane in each direction, that there'll be about two to three metres of rubble in the streets. So getting through this city is going to be virtually impossible. What are people going to do for food and in particular water? Well, if they haven't prepared themselves and had the earthquake kits, they are in for a lot of hardship. 
and they will not be able to expect central government to turn up at their door with, you know, with a smile and a bucket saying, here it is. Is this a question of attitude, self-reliance versus waiting for the state to come and save you? Well, it's interesting. Um, I think New Zealand is are pretty well, pretty well cognizant of what the risks are. And during Y2K, there was $2 million advertising campaign to prepare New Zealand for the possibility of a problem. And a lot of people, vast majority of New Zealanders, said to researchers that they had, in fact, prepared. Um, as opposed to the states, where there are people who refuse to move out of flood zones or storm zones and refuse to take insurance and expect to be bailed out because you know, that's their God-given right to live in those places. There will always be people who, for whatever reason, don't prepare and will expect others to come and help them. I think New Zealanders are, by and large, pretty, due to their nature, more self-reliant than perhaps other countries. But the reality is when this thing hits, people will be on their own for some length of time. And as a result, um, people will die through lack of um, getting critical care. Let me just conclude by saying this. Um, in terms of what's happened in the States, it is very tempting for people, because of the political structure I outlined earlier, to point the finger at Washington. But when, when all the analysis is over, I will not be at all surprised if the culprits, for want of a better word, for the suffering are found a lot more closer to the City Hall of New Orleans than they are in D.C. That was Kiwi Bob with a New Zealand perspective on the disaster in New Orleans. For a closer view, hear from his site, This Blog is Full of Crap, is Houston's own Lawrence Simon. Hi, this is Lawrence Simon from Houston. This is not the Full of Crap report this week. This is something else. Don't underestimate the heart of a champion is what uh, Houston Rockets' former manager, Rudy Tomjanovich once said, for the longest time, the ambassador, the symbol, the icon, the heart of this city was the Astrodome, where Houston never actually won a championship. The Dome, since the Astros went off to play in the field formerly known as Enron, since that fatball bastard Bud Adams abandoned it in a fit of corporate welfare to haul his marbles off to Tennessee, it's sadly gone from that huge, strongly beating heart to a money-bleeding sore. Now it's going to be a temporary home for tens of thousands of refugees from the Big Easy. And beyond them, there's tens and thousands more already here that we're opening up our museums, our schools, our libraries, our businesses, anything with a door, we've got the welcome mat in front of it. President Bush even thanked us yesterday for that spirit of compassion. Well, you're welcome, President, but we can do so much more. Among the so-called A-list bloggers, I'd like to read some kind words from columnist Michelle Malkin. Houston is lending a big hand. Evacuees from the Superdome will be moved to the Astrodome. Blog Houston is up to date on the latest community efforts to welcome the evacuees. The Houston School District is opening its doors to displaced victims. And she's got a little bit more about it. Check out her site, michellemalkin2ls.com. And that's two L's in the Michelle, not the Malkin. Okay, glad we got that straight. The Dome's fate has been debated for quite a while. Some say it should be a prison. Others say it would make a fine indoor Riverwalk Hotel, if you can believe that. You know, we've got excess hotel capacity out the wazoo down here, and they want to build more rooms nobody will use? Kooky. I'm going to admit that I'm one of the many that have called for the Dome's destruction. It burns at least a million and a half taxpayer dollars sitting there, barely used. And that's the money that we lay out that we know of. Maybe after all of this, it'll still get demolished. But if it faces the wrecking ball tomorrow, 
Wait, let me take that back. If it faces the wrecking ball after the last New Orleans refugee goes back home, the heart of a champion city that beats so hard and with so much compassion for its fellow man in its time of need is getting to beat strong for this one last time. What anyone asks of themselves, I guess, not to be taken for granted, not to just take up space, not to be a burden, instead to be useful, to be loved, and when gone, not ever to be forgotten by those who have been touched by its presence. Thank you, and give generously to the Red Cross at redcross.org. Take it away, Tom Payne. Thanks, Lawrence. And Lawrence, by the way, is uh, doing sterling work helping out with the refugees that Houston is hosting. You're listening to Shire Network News, the official podcast of SilentRunning.tv. I'm Tom Payne. New Zealand goes to the polls on Saturday. I myself just uh, cast an absentee ballot here in Melbourne today. I spoke to Craig Renapia, one of the writers at the blog NZ Pundit, and asked him what he makes of the many wildly contradictory polls. All over the Kiwi blogosphere have, you know, come up with the same conclusion. I mean, boils down down to, you know, we don't know. I mean, the only conclusion you can come up with is that either the polling companies have no idea what they're doing, or that there is such a wide divergence in their methods, methodology, and the questions they ask that. Uh, no, these kinds of results are almost inevitable. Or there's another possibility that a large chunk of the electorate is so indecisive that they're probably a nightmare to go shopping with, take to restaurants, or you know, engage in any activity that requires a decision. I mean, I think the one interesting thing that's happening this election is I think we not only have the clearest choices between the two main parties we've had in almost 20 years, but also this race is turning out to be incredibly close. Back in the Roman days, they'd have priests that would slaughter an animal of some sort and look at the condition of its liver. Would we get better and more accurate results by doing that, do you think, than by having polls? Well, we probably would, except, I mean, it's very difficult to get chicken blood out of a computer keyboard. I, I think, you know, that's actually a very good analogy, but, I mean, the difference is if we're actually a little more um, sceptical about, you know, voodoo, voodoo priestesses, you know, waving chicken guts in our face. We're not as sophisticated as we should be when it comes to, you know, their secular modern equivalent, you know, the pollsters. Well, I don't know, the Greens might be into it, at least it's natural. <laughs> yes, well, and you certainly can't, you certainly can't eat a poll report. But uh, I think a really quite disturbing change we've we're seeing in this election and the polls are a part of it is that we've seen the two main parties you know, sort of quite nakedly and candidly saying that they're going to be running a highly, for want of a better word a presidential style campaign that is based on you know, the personalities of the two leaders. I thought those two didn't have personalities. Well, it depends on how generous you want to be with the, be with the definition. But, I mean, certainly we're not seeing, from either Helen Clark or Don Brash, you know, Churchillian eloquence, um, Blairite, carefully contrived sincerity, or even Bill Clinton's, you know, good old-fashioned sex appeal. I think that's what's turning some people off. You know, you're having a, a personality contest on people who have no 
personalities whatsoever. You're seeing a battle over tax where um, the fine details actually either bore people rigid or are, you know, completely bewildering. A battle over tax, my eyes are glazing over already. Yes, indeed. In the rest of the world, we've had lots of really important life and death issues. We've had uh, George Bush return to the United States, John Howard uh, in Australia, Tony Blair in the UK, all fighting the war on terror. There are vast issues of national direction of uh, which way for the West uh, do we sacrifice uh, civil liberties to be able to fight the war on terror? Is there a war on terror at all? Is any of this having any impact on New Zealand or is New Zealand sort of off to one side regarding the whole world with cool neutrality? We don't actually have a perception that we're directly affected by terrorism. I mean, in fact, the the last example of um, a terrorist outrage in this country, state-sponsored or otherwise, um, happened 20 years ago. I mean, that was a rainbow warrior bombing, and fortunately or not, we're still talking to the French government over that one. Early in the campaign, we sort of saw the incumbent, incumbent Labour Party trying to ramp up the local anti-Iraq war sentiment by implying that uh, the National Party leader, Don Brash, would have taken us into the Iraq war by lunchtime and we would have seen, you know, young Kiwi servicemen and women coming back in body bags. Ignoring the fact that we've got half our Navy patrolling the Persian Gulf and RSS in Afghanistan. Well, I mean, exactly. You know, that was sort of something that I think was intended to be a dog whistle campaign to rev people up and it turned out to be a bit of a flop. It got the angry left energised and slightly hysterical. It just wasn't where I think most people, you know, the magical centre where elections are supposedly lost and won, I don't think it really engaged people. What role have blogs played in this election in New Zealand? They're, they're pretty clearly marked down the middle into left and right blogs, aren't they? I think generally that's as true in New Zealand as it is elsewhere. And we've seen pretty clear ideological distinctions. And I'd have some sympathy with the argument that, you know, that in the blogosphere, you know, you end up just preaching to the converted and then just shouting at people who are never going to agree with you in the first place. I'd also say that because most of us political bloggers, despite having strong political views on either the left or right, aren't too directly plugged into the party political machines, we can actually stand back a bit, be a little more flexible on how we react to issues or talk about them, rather than having to stay in lockstep with you know, sort of the, the talking points that the parties are putting out that day. If you were uh, someone from outside New Zealand, say you were from the United States, and you wanted to know about what was happening with New Zealand politics, and after all, it's only one week to go until the elections on the 17th, which blogs would you recommend that they, uh, they turn to? Probably I should get my, my complete self-interest out of the way out of the way first is that um, I'm a contributor to um, nzpundit.com and the more eyeballs we get on that the better. Probably the two high, the two highest profile bloggers in New Zealand are David Farrer who you know, blogs from the centre right at um, kiwiblog.co.nz and Russell Brown on the centre left. Now he blogs as part of a collective called Public Address. They both have 
pretty comprehensive um, blog rolls of shouters and ranters and ravers on you know, both the left and the right. There's another very good blog, Sir Humphreys, of course. Oh, yeah, yeah, yes, the um, glorious sort of, um, you know, H.L. Mencanite um, tradition of um, bad-tempered, bad-tempered muckraking, which I find very enjoyable. And I think another fairly good blog on the left, and I think probably about the only really successful example of um, politicians blogging, a Apart from Rodney Hyde, is um, Frog Blog, which is the um, official blog of the um, Green Party. It's one of those things that I mean, I'd check myself in, in for a little rest cure if I ever agreed with it too often, but it's enjoyably written, um, fairly upfront with its um, biases, but sort of not just a compendium of warmed-up press releases. And finally, Craig, care to stick your neck out and go out on a limb and predict what's going to happen on the 17th? Uh, I wouldn't want to predict what's going to happen on the 17th, but I will predict on the 18th that I'm probably not going to be the only political pundit who's going to have a hell of a hangover and will be putting an ad on trade me to get rid of her crystal ball. That was Craig Renapia of NZ Pundit. Next week, this podcast will be taking a break, largely because the New Zealand elections are on that weekend. I'm going to be pretty busy. It may take a while before we see the final result, and there will be some technical changes that need to be made, and I can't do all of that and do an addition to the podcast over a single weekend. Yeah, I know I said the same thing last week, so I lied. Sue me. Well, finally, um, as an example of the human side of blogging, uh, may I personally take this opportunity to thank Debbie Lundell of Minneapolis, who has very generously volunteered to buy me the DVD of the National Geographic documentary on 9-11, which is just screened in the United States. I did try buying it online, but the National Geographic Mail Order Division apparently has a map showing the legend, Here Be Dragons, anywhere outside the US and Canada, and they wouldn't take my money. So my thanks to Debbie Lundell of Minneapolis for that act of kindness. It's much appreciated. So don't believe what they tell you about the only people you ever meet online being ex-murderers. Speaking of axe murderers, here as promised is Andrew Ian Dodge, who only looks like an axe murderer, with his band growing old disgracefully and their newly released single, Cry Freedom. For more information, go to www.disgracefulmusic.com. I'm Tom Payne. Drop by and visit me at silentrunning.tv. should be up and running very shortly. And until next time, may your God go with you.
You cry free. 